This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Fat. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share what Muslims are talking about in the U.S. over the past couple weeks, the stories that are important to them. And we've got a great show today. We are going to learn today about a documentary that follows six American Muslim immigrants and hear an interview from one of the directors of that documentary and one of the participants. We'll also shine a light on an organization that challenges systems of oppression rooted in Islamophobia. But first, I just wanted to share some thoughts on Aaron Bushnell. Aaron, you'll remember, was the person who last week set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in D.C. to protest the genocide of the Palestinian people and the U.S.'s involvement in it. He died after being taken to the hospital. Many Muslims in America were talking about Aaron and what he called himself an extreme act of protest. And yeah, it was an extreme act, likely born from months of mental anguish from seeing daily images of death and destruction in Gaza. It's a mental anguish that so many allies of Gaza, especially within parts of the American Muslim community are feeling right now and have been honestly for the last you know couple months. It's just hard to avoid the emotions and that sense of hopelessness. I hope Aaron did not die in vain and that the powers that be will respond to his act of protest by ending the war, but I'm not optimistic. And look, I'm not going to judge how Aaron or other people, you know, protest and and the forms that it takes. Everyone has their own way of doing things. And I'm certain that Aaron will be remembered for forever for his commitment to human rights and justice for all. I guess what I would say is that if you are thinking about doing something extreme, if you are feeling the same way that Aaron felt, please reach out to someone for help because we need you here and now on this earth to fight for the better future that we all want. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. Our first guests today are Jeffrey Hugg, director of the documentary Hudson America, and Jahed Mia, one of the people the project follows. 
Hudson America was produced and directed by Zuka Kurtz and Jeffrey Hugg and recently premiered on Amazon Prime Video and Canopy. The documentary follows the lives of six first-generation immigrant high school students from Hudson's Bangladeshi Muslim community who faced challenges after a button factory they moved to for work closed in the early 90s. The film explores the struggle of identity, fear, xenophobia, arranged marriage, forbidden love, and the dilemmas of leaving community for college. Hudson America provides insight into the diverse and changing city of Hudson, New York, and offers a poignant look at the students' experiences. Here is the trailer for Hudson America. says that like God always knows what you're doing you know God is always watching I'm very fond of the Bengalis basically they're my neighbors they're the only religious community in this area that's building a mosque most churches are closing I identified myself as a Muslim but it's like I was living in hypocrisy Taking off the hijab is something that I'm like still actively pursuing. I don't think my parents have chosen my significant other for me, at least not yet. I'm a little bit afraid. I believe my parents will look for somebody for me to get married to, and I'm all for it, you know, I guess. I think that romance is not for me. Everyone has secrets, and things like the secrets always come out, and so like, <laughs> I'm not the only one. Organizing begins in religious spaces, and it's really, really easy to empower people because they're already there believing in a higher power. If I thought Hudson was like suffocating before the self-quarantine, social distancing, it's even more. I'm just trying to stay sane. It's 5.25 a.m. I'm going back to America today. The risk to me is that I'm going to lose my family. My mom, she believes in hell. She feels the heat when she sins, like, she feels the heat for me. We asked Jeffrey and Jahid on to the show to share about their experiences making the film. Jahid and Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining American Muslim Project. Jeffrey, I'll start with you. Where did this idea come from for this documentary? Uh, so my partner, Siska Kurtz, I've worked with her for about a decade. And uh, Hudson America is the third film we've done together. Um, and she always has like a really good like nose for sniffing out interesting stories, stories that haven't yet been told. Um, so that kind of leads to like a really fruitful partnership between us. And she, uh, became a, uh, um, she met the Bangladeshi community through Ramisa, who's in our film. Uh, she just met her at, uh, I guess, a bodega or, you know, corner store oh, wow. and was really kind of taken by her and you know, met her sisters. And uh, I think was very interested in this new generation of, uh, Bangladeshi immigrants that were coming over and, um, and then was able to, you kind of basically, uh, have Ramisa kind of basically call it, have a casting call 
um, where she would, uh, she went to the school, as I understand it, and basically was like, hey, I got this, these people, they want to do a documentary on us, and who wants to be included? And, you know, Jahed and Sadiq and uh, Ramisa, or sorry, uh, Farzana and uh, Mamuda uh, all answered. And uh, we just sort of met up with them and, you know, started shooting. And the initial idea was it was going to be four years to coincide okay. with the presidential cycle, uh, which yeah, would also... Sure coincide with their college careers but then as it happened things you know just kept the pandemic other things kept coming uh you know, happening and so we uh we just kept shooting and then finally yeah, in 2022 no. we're like okay we got to stop at some point you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally i feel like you, you, you continue going with everything that's going on in the world today and, I mean, and whatnot right i kind of want to shoot ending. your head right now i'm looking at him i kind of <laughs> want to turn this camera on and capture his thoughts you know i really do <laughs> amazing Judd, take us back to 2015, 2016, like what was going on in your life? And then, you know, remind our listeners and our viewers, like what was going on in the country and in the world? Yeah, during that time, it was my senior year of high school. And Ramisa just uh, approached approached me. She's like, hey, uh, there's these people who would like to do a documentary on Bengali Muslim youth. Then is that something you'd be interested in? I'm like, Hell yeah, you know, like <laughs> it sounds like like a, like once in a lifetime opportunity. So I was like, sign me up, I'm right on board, and it was nice to uh, to go on this adventure. Yeah, and this was like during Trump, the rise of Trump and Islamophobia and that kind of stuff. Were you nervous at all about partaking in this, or like what what was your what what drove you to say yes, especially to people that you didn't really know? Who wanted to share your story? I'm no stranger to Islamophobia. You know, my I have four older brothers. Um, especially post 9-11, they had to deal with a lot, especially like in our community. What first uh, drove me to say yes, I just thought it was an insanely cool opportunity. You know, uh, someone is interested just to shine a light on our community who's often misunderstood and misrepresented. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was a really cool opportunity. And as I got more involved with the project, you know, it became a vehicle of self-reflection. And eventually, I just wanted to represent our faith and Islam as best as I can and what it means to me. And so for other people who kind of had a similar journey and with me, I could kind of connect with them and connect with me. Yeah. Jeff, uh, Jeffrey, um, there are a bunch of kind of themes that emerge in this documentary. I don't know if you knew them like going in or if they, they came about through, you know, as you're following your, your main subjects, but like, you know, clearly identity and, you know, a culture and uh, you know, but then there was kind of uh, arranged marriages and forbidden loves and kind of this leaving this community, you know, like, so I guess t talk to me about like, what you learned during this process and, and why, why, you know, why you continued with this project for so long? Uh, well, I mean, again, Zuska does have a really good, um, we have a really good working relationship and she does find exciting projects that I can kind of lose myself in and, you know, help sure. kind of actualize with her. And this was definitely the biggest one we'd done. And as time went on, I, you know, we really got to know all of the participants really well, uh, you know, not just on camera, but off camera as well. Um, as well. And uh, as Jahed said, uh, it, well, it started sort of more almost like political and kind of like, you know, getting uh, an idea of, you know, the, uh, 
zeitgeist around us, it became much more personal as time went on. And the stories became more personal. We kind of locked in on each individual person specifically because they all, and the, once they all leave Hudson, they all have different trajectories. They all, um, they all go in, they all kind of like have different paths that are informed by, you know, their experiences. And so that became really interesting. And uh, I, I think for me, the personal element of it really spoke uh, these young people's journeys, giving them a platform of you know, giving them a voice and uh, a stage with which to share their experiences. Uh, to me, it felt like a real, um, very powerful and kind of like a privilege that you know, we could offer them. And that, uh, that was a privilege for me too, because I, I did learn a lot uh, about them, about the culture, uh, about Islam, about um, uh, about a lot and came out of it like much more informed, I'd say. Yeah, totally. Any uh, favorite anecdotes from the filming or even from the documentary itself for either one of you that, uh, you know, you wish to share? One of my personal favorite uh, parts of the documentary is honestly listening to what Alicia had to say and her perspective. Who, remind people who Alicia is. Alicia was uh, my partner during a few years of the documentary. And during the time, uh, we, when we were together, you know, and we would do our interviews, she would ask me, like, hey, so what did you say during the documentary? And I'd be like, I don't know, like, you know, we'll see, you know, and kind of like a joke between us. But we never really did, like, tell each other what we would say. And it was just, I, I think, uh, extremely humbling to kind of experience that. Yeah, sure. Jeffrey, anything step uh anything in your mind that that uh, is memorable yeah i went in the first day kind of not knowing so much i was kind of briefly uh you know briefed about this project and you know what we were looking at it was always an experiment we'll just do a day's shoot see how it goes and see if it works um so i came up from brooklyn uh went and did it met everybody and uh, i think the moment uh which is in the film it's one of the first shots where Jahed and Sadiq have, have the kids and they're spinning them around on this uh, little swing set, uh, you know, or like playground thing. And, you know, they're like, are you ready? Are you ready for fun? Yeah, I'm ready for fun. I'm ready for life. Is what the kids scream. And then they start spinning and they're all yelling. And just the ease with which that they, with which Jahed and Sadiq interacted with these kids and the sense of community that we saw and were able to capture uh, really touched me and inspired me in a way where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like all in, you know, from day one. Yeah. And then, you know, so, and we continued shooting for seven years after that. Amazing. Yeah. I, you know, that I, I, I know of Hudson just being, you know, it's North of New York city and then kind of the, uh, but I don't know much about the town itself. It seems like a pretty small town. Um, you know, was there a reason, uh, John, that your family moved there? And then also Jeffrey, like what I would love to know from your perspective, like, how the town itself played a role in shaping the experience of this community. For my family, we moved to Hudson November 2001. So wow. Especially wow. post post 9/11, my brothers they would get into a lot of physical altercations. Sure. Um during that period of life, so I think it was my family just kind of looking for an opportunity to escape some of those sentiments. And I moved. I moved when I was two years old. Um, I, I think that was one of the main motivations of my family is just for better opportunities and to escape some of that violence we experienced. Yeah, for sure. I can only imagine. Yeah, Jeffrey, what was the role the that the town played in telling in 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 this story? In your opinion, well, the town is sort of. I mean, so we kind of present. 
we hope this so many ways, kind of a microcosm of America through these yeah. six young people's eyes. And this town itself certainly seems to be a microcosm of America in that, I don't know if, you, if anybody researches it, you'll see it's a real kind of tourist destination. You know, wealthy people, art, artsy types, whatever, you know, business people from the city go up there to vacation on the weekends. Uh, but then there's, a, you know, obviously the, the locals and then there, the Bangladeshi community, as I understand it, was largely invisible, like not people didn't know about them much. In fact, mm -hmm. we've multiple screenings we had. Uh, people said, uh, people from Hudson said, I didn't, I didn't even know there was a Bangladeshi community here wow. until this movie. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, uh, but as I understand it, Jahed can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, they live like you know, just a block or two from the commercial, the main commercial strip. The whole town is only two square miles. So, so they're kind of like, you know, living with each other. And uh, so, um, so I think so. I think it, in that sense, it is. It was successful yeah. in in cho choosing this as uh, you know a place to be a microcosm of America as we know it. Uh, you know, especially as a melting pot. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything that you would want our listeners to know about? I guess. Why? Yeah. T tell our listeners why should they they should watch this. Do you want to go, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the. So my main motivations with engaging with the film and trying to be as transparent as I can with my experiences and, and my journey was just so it could resonate with others who had similar struggles as me yeah. or, or, you know, kind of experiencing, you know, having a similar, similar journey. Um, I, I wanted, you know, people to feel like if they're experiencing hardship or you know, that there's a way to move forward and, for me, kind of grounding myself through faith, I was extremely empowering, and honestly, was was a catalyst to to, to achieve like dean's list in, in college, and it's amazing, you know, and to interact with people in in a whole different light. Um, and so, if anyone would like to kind of see how that plays, you know, uh, how that plays in my life and offers a perspective. Uh, and uh, how, you know, that might be able to affect them. Um, or, you know, just to see how Islam is represented in someone's life and how that, yeah. how that moves someone into, like, relationships, and, you know, and, and how it's a, it truly is a way of life. And uh, that, that's something I think the film can offer and how other people interact with faiths too, you know. Um, I think that think that's something that that is worth watching. Nice, that's awesome, Jeffrey. Do you want to add anything? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, like, as time goes on, we live in kind of a, you know kind of separated bubbles. You know, we all live in our little bubble that sort of reinforces our worldview. Uh, and um, you know, I'm from Alabama, I grew up in Alabama. Uh, I don't, I never really met anybody Muslim growing up, and uh, mm. so I think the film really touches on the the common commonalities among us and yeah. you know i mean i'm like 43 you know like jihad's like it's like 17 when i met him you know but like you know we we kind of broke out you know we had like yeah. we ended up having this like great time in bermuda and everybody uh you know i saw kind of a reflection in a lot of ways once you know in dealing with them and seeing and you know seeing seeing the person behind uh you know behind the camera behind like you know the lights behind everything we were doing so i would say this film really uh or hopefully uh touches on things we have in common even if you're even if you're not muslim even if you're not 
17, even if you don't live in upstate New York, even if you're not an immigrant, uh, we all share these uh, common struggles, common goals, common loves, common losses. And I think the participants in the film really uh, represented those quite beautifully um, in a way that a lot of people will be able to relate to. And hopefully it can be a unifying uh, experience watching this film. Amazing. Jeffrey Jad, thanks so much for joining American Muslim Project. Look forward to seeing uh, more work coming out uh, about <laughs> about Jahed's life, potentially in the future. <laughs> oh, it's coming. We're about to shoot another seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you both. Thank okay, you yeah, thank you, Azad. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll spotlight a new Muslim organization that you should know about. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. This week, we're shining a spotlight on the Muslim Counter Publix Lab, which is a grassroots community building organization that uses the tools of research, writing and organizing, as well as direct programming to challenge systems of oppression rooted in Islamophobia. We asked for we asked their founder and executive director, Dr. Maha Halal, to share more about the organization and their work. So the mission of the Muslim Counter Publics Lab is to disrupt and subvert dehumanizing narratives that are designed and deployed to justify state violence against Muslims. And this mission statement and the work of the organization really comes out of, you know, this long trajectory of post 9-11 narratives that the United States government has used to justify the war on terror to dehumanize Muslims, and to be able to basically inflict massive state violence domestically and across the globe that is disproportionately targeted Muslims. So contrapublics are these spaces where marginalized communities, communities are being excluded from these spaces, can come together both to develop and push and develop strategies, right? Narratives, et cetera, that fundamentally challenge the status quo and the assumptions embedded within the dominant narrative, as well as serving as a space where communities can come together and find reprieve in these spaces of exclusion, right? In these spaces of dehumanization. Um, where can we go to find community? and to build the power, right, to resist and deconstruct and challenge these systems of oppression that are very much perpetuated by, of course, the narratives that are being used to demonize our communities. So Muslim Counter Publics Lab has three programs. The first is the Narrative Power Program. The second is political education and organizing program. And the last is our redressing injustice help desk. So through our narrative power program, the emphasis thus far has been on um, producing opinion pieces, thought pieces, um, sort of spearheading some of the, the work that I, we believe needs to be done in terms of pushing back against problematic narratives in Muslims. In addition, um, last November, we launched a Muslim Narrative Power Fellowship, 
and we have 14 fellows who we've been training on narrative theory, um, how to build and create counter narratives, and um, hopefully a program that will culminate in the production of an op-ed from each fellow. The second is our political education and organizing. So there's a lot of overlap inherently with the programming because it's hard to often separate narrative from organizing and political education. Um, so our political education and organizing program really does focus on the war on terror. And so we have done events, for example, on the closure of Guantanamo Bay, surveillance of Muslims, many other issues that are basically affecting and impacting Muslims both in real time and sort of as far as the trajectory of the war on terror has been in the last two plus decades. And then finally, our Redressing Injustice Help Desk. Much of this work has been focused on um, helping to create and sustain the Guantanamo Survivors Fund. Um, and we work with uh, a couple of different organizations, Witness Against Torture, No More Guantanamos, and HEART, to basically provide small grants to Guantanamo survivors who have been abandoned and mostly left you know, destitute, often without a legal status, the ability to gain employment, or any other resources to help rebuild their lives post-detention. You know, the United States is built on multiple systems of oppression. And, you know, obviously they operate together. So Islamophobia as a system of oppression, which is what, you know, Muslim counterpublics lab focuses on specifically, right, um, is interconnected with anti-Blackness, right, uh, with cultural racism, racism in general, right, xenophobia, um, all of these different systems of oppression. And the approach we really focus on specifically is understanding and uplifting the role of Islamophobia in the policies of the state. And specifically because of the fact that um, throughout the course of the war on terror, and obviously Islamophobia predates the war on terror, but it has been deeply entrenched into the war's apparatus, but at the same time still treated as though it's a coincidence or that it's an unintended consequence um, in terms of why Muslims have been targeted and continue to be targeted. So when we talk about dismantling the war on terror, we simultaneously insist on the mainstreaming of an Islamophobia analysis as necessary to dismantle in order to really abolish the war on terror. In this particular moment, in the midst of a genocide against the Palestinians that have been, has been waged by Israel and supported by the United States, one of the ways this violence has, you know, been allowed to perpetuate is through these dominant narratives that serves the state's agendas, right? We've seen this time and time again, right? So what are the reasons why the United States decided it had to go to war or launch a war in Iraq or in Afghanistan, right? This idea that the United States is a blameless victim. We don't know what happened. The people that attacked us are just evil. And similarly, Israel is using those same sets of narrative constructions. And so the work really is important now because we have to highlight 
and amplify the deconstruction of these narratives to really underscore what people need to know and how people should be understanding these narratives and how they're being weaponized to dehumanize and justify violence against our communities. Over the last two decades plus, of course, where Muslims have constantly been constructed as terrorists, Islam is barbaric, we're uncivilized, etc. Oftentimes the counter narratives that are designed in response are things that, for example, say that Muslims, no, we're not terrorists. Um, we're good citizens. We pay our taxes. We came here legally, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem with that strategy is that when you respond in that way, you're reiterating the dominant narrative and legitimizing it insofar as you're treating it as a narrative that deserves to be responded to. And that has been the entire problem, right, of this narrative ecosystem, which is that Muslims are always taught to respond to the dominant narrative. So we can't tell our stories outside of 9-11, right? We can't tell our stories outside of terrorism. We always have to be pigeonholed into responding to the dominant narrative in a way that really restricts and limits our ability to tell our stories and our ability to shape an alternative narrative where we can really push back and challenge state violence. For more information on the Muslim Counterpublics Lab, you can check out their website. We'll have links in the show notes to that. That's going to do it for this episode of American Muslim Project. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafelion Media. We'd love to know your thoughts. Email us at info at Special thanks to our guests, Jeffrey Hug and Jahad Mia, as well as Dr. Maha Halal. Thanks to producer Ari, and thanks to you. Until next time, I'm Muslim Project.